0: Sandoz and the Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Good Thursday and
1: coming to you from Studio B. What do you think of that? We're trying to get Sandoz and the Sidekick up and running for our loyal fans and last night was the end of Buck Madness and so I just want to say this before we get going. More than a few people came over to tell me how much they enjoy listening to Sandoz and the Sidekick. But more importantly, two of them I don't know how much they know each other told me that you should retire from bold predictions. Now, I agree. It's over. <laughs> you should just pack it in and go and you'll appreciate it. Janet Stork who's been a longtime supporter of ETSU, yep. huge supporter of the women's great. basketball program. Yep. She has an hour, I didn't know this about her. And I've known her for a while. Hour drive to work. Mm. Every day and so you know how you kill a good hour of time? Sandos in the sidekick.
2: And it is killing that hour. Of yes time. it is. I don't I, time. Don't,
1: I don't I don't didn't say it was a good hour of time. She's dealing with it. But she was like, "Oh, that poor Mike, he should You know, maybe maybe he should just give up on bowl predictions. I said, I agree. I said, I'm going to bring it up tomorrow. First thing on the show is that I also probably gave – I made a a stat, but I was like, I can't – I think it's taken us a year of, you know, I don't know, 30 weeks, 35 weeks of guessing to get to eight wins, and I've magically got there so we can talk about how great I am here in a minute. But uh, a lot to talk about. We will talk football from Studio B. We will certainly – talk uh, the Buck basketball bashes uh, spectacular Buck winners or whatever that's called. And then uh, we'll go around the Southern Conference. We will talk uh, games because I think there are some interesting games around the Southern Conference as there are every single week and now that everybody's jumbled up. So, curious. I know my thoughts on those games. I want to hear Mike's thoughts and breakdown as well. And then bold predictions in which uh, I've only got one. I've got to get a few more. So, as we uh, go here in the show and you see me uh, perusing the uh, – you know, internet or whatever, you'll know what I'm doing, Mike. It's not that I'm not listening to you, which I usually don't, but I'm, I'm also trying to find yeah, a, a bold prediction. Yeah, definitely the
2: first few seasons of the show, it was just perusing whatever you wanted. I'd look over and you're looking at, like, fantasy football or you're looking up, like, ancient uh, Mediterranean history, things like that, you know, because you're an uh, intellectual. Man of the people. Yeah, absolutely, an academic. Uh, people don't know that about you, but you definitely are. And, uh... This year, it seems like you are more, you know, dialed in, locked in, and it's not just in bold predictions. I think it's to the entire show, and it has showed on the show. Uh, so, hopefully, today's show, it will show again for you. Uh, for my sake, I'm hoping that there is no show of your ability on this show, so I can <laughs> show my ability. On are you paid by the word? Shows. That's what I want
0: to know. Are you
1: paid by the word?
2: There's got to be some sponsorship there with a company that has the word show in it. Yeah. Okay. can't right. think of one right now, but I'm i
1: Showtime, maybe. Maybe, mm, mm, maybe we, we can Santos yeah. and the Sidekick
2: to Showtime. That's right. Forget
1: about Inside NFL. What about Inside Santos and Sidekick? What wow. would sell more? Uh, inside NFL. I get it. I get it. Going. That's fine. <laughs> all right. Let's talk a little bit about this uh, ETSU Furman. First of all, I did go back and finally, it was actually this morning, I made it to the second half of the Citadel Furman so I oh, could see the play.
2: Yes. <laughs> a little backstory. So you come in yesterday, and it's – 3, 4 o'clock, uh, right as one of our major pieces of equipment is failing in the studio, which is why we are in Studio B. And I ask you right away, okay, have you seen the play yet? Because I went back and watched the play, and you're like, no, 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 I'm through about a quarter and a half, and I was like, oh my gosh, let me know when you've seen the play. And I have not seen you this morning until now, so I am excited to hear your thoughts.
1: It is amazing to me, um, because the first camera angle, and I'm listening to the TV crew, who is equally. Not sure what's going on because there is a random flag at the end of the reverse from Raleigh Webb. And at first, and I knew what the, uh, the penalty was on, so they're actually focusing in on like an offensive guard down the field, a cut block or something. Then they finally zoom in on the infraction. That is awful. I mean, he blocked, he blocked the guy about a yard out of bounds, and I guess he held the block long? I. I Again, I agree with Coach Thompson. If he was shoved I mean, he wasn't even what, two steps maybe on, on the uh, so basically that's about right, two steps. you have the sideline, right, then you have sort of that, that big five yard of white that's sort of the get back area where people's supposed to be behind and all that. I mean, he's not even halfway in the white and I guess because he held the block a little too long. And I get it, you know, that's probably the rule, but sometimes it's about game management, you know. Was that really worth calling? And then a couple of plays later, there is a spectacular,
2: spectacular
1: play for a fumble that I think got kind of yada yada in yes, Coach's comments about, you know, then the turnover because the defensive play to swat the ball away on a pitch and recover it like ten yards down the field was incredible.
2: For those of, us, those of you that don't know what we're talking about, on the show Monday – We played some Brent Thompson audio, Citadel head coach, where he eviscerated, it seemed like more so the game of football, rather than anything else, he did get rather upset about this call in the, I believe it was the third quarter still, where there was a Raleigh Webb reverse on a third down, 17 yards, into Furman territory, wiped away by a block out of bounds. Now, the SOCON director of officiating defended the call this week, I'm sure you saw that, and... I do have to say, letter of the law, it did seem like a penalty. Now, is it something you should call, because truly it was, what, two or three yards at most out of bounds? Uh, I mean, at most.
1: At at most. And that's probably generous, that we're being generous with
2: that. I know referees aren't supposed to consider time and situation. You know, third and four, he's so close to it, being, and I don't know where the block started, they didn't have that on the replay, maybe the block started inbounds, and if it started inbounds then that's an even worse call, now, if for some reason, the person that the Citadel uh, blocker was blocking was out of bounds for whatever reason, again, I don't know why it would have ended up out of bounds in the first place, it seems like the block would have had to have started inbounds um, then maybe I can understand it a little bit more, but truly if it starts inbounds and then is pushed you know, two or three yards out of bounds, to me, that's a great block It's an incredible block to drive him off the field of play, and you're not going to stop blocking him just because you look down and you see your feet on the white. So in that sense, I understand Brent Thompson's concern. But you make a great point about the play, I think it was two plays later, from Elijah McCoy. He, and I'll try to describe this as best I can, because it's not something I've actually seen before. Jalen Adams goes to run, you know, triple option for the usual, obviously. And Elijah McCoy, and he said post-game, he saw this on tape again and again and again, recognized it. And think just think about how quick these things have to be firing in your head to be able to recognize it, go to the right lane. He swats the pitch out of midair and then recovers the fumble. And, and essentially, that sequence was the ball game, which, again, is where I can understand why Brent Thompson was upset. And in the fact that it's the heat of the moment after the game, game's gone soft. And, you know, they're losing and losing and losing over the last couple of seasons. I get the timing of that penalty was harsh. I still think it was a penalty. Uh, I do think it's a soft call. I can see it both ways. The bigger issue, though, again, was the turnover and the fact that you turned it over on downs or via turnover six times in the game or seven. I can't remember what it was. It was four turnover on downs and then two
1: fumbles and an interception. So, I mean,
2: absolutely absurd. 0 for 4 on fourth down. That's the bigger issue. Elijah McCoy's play, you're absolutely correct, should have been the storyline there because in his first start in quite some time, he plays their bandit, you know, basically your Blake Bacher, at stand-up linebacker off the 3-4. He goes in and swats it away, recovers it, and, and changes the entire game. Uh, it had an absolutely massive contest. I think it was ten tackles plus the forced fumble, fumble recovery, a couple of tackles for a loss, and a sack and he equals how many tackles he had the entire year in that one game alone. That is someone, along with a number of others on the defensive side of the ball, um, that I believe is going to be, perhaps, you know, should things go like they did against Chattanooga last week, a problem for ETSU. And I'm guessing you know, you brought him up last night in the coaches show, the other couple that I'm thinking of. You
1: know, it's funny, I did bring it up last night, now I'm trying to think. Um,
2: <clears throat> Certainly the man that had 15 sacks his freshman year. Uh, Adrian Hope. It not uh, and really and, make and much sense, but
1: there was twice he went out of the game um, mm. at that, and the first time I thought maybe a cramp um, for Hope, and then the second time looked a little more. He was a little more ginger on yeah. his leg, so I'm not sure the health. Now we talked on a coaching show because they made a change, or me and you talked as well mm-hmm. off air um, about they they run a three four, but they you know, they don't wanna call it a three three five, but they generally have a smaller safety type player normally on the outside. So for ETSU, think about where DeAndre Davis or Jay Harrison plays and so that's sort of that role the opposite of Bachrath, right? So Bachrath and Hope would be the same or Porter, where they walk up on the line and the backside is just more, you know, if there's backside pursuit, there's some more passing, they gotta be able to run a little more you know, they're not quite the pass rush specialist. And so, because of the triple option, I think they just simply went with, well, let's just get a bigger body because they're not going to throw it as much and we need to stop. Well, he had such a great game that listed for the two deep this week that he's listed as the starter. Two deep, they're going to go with both linebackers. And I said, well, I think that's genius because ETSU doesn't really spread it around. Now, yes, they were getting three wide and, you know, four wide or whatever, but it's no shock ETSU wants to run the football. So, I think they discovered something defensively that they'll want to do, but for Hope, the amazing thing, I, I actually, this is incredible to me. He was fourth on the balloting back in 2018 for the Jerry Rice Freshman of the Year Award. That's the highest a defensive player had finished at that, uh, I mean, just in those ranks. I think like 25, 25 back, <laughs> like 25 years as far back. That's 25 years as far back as I could me. find. Now, I'm not sure if the award started 25 years ago or. If that's just the site, and it was a suspect site, I you know <laughs> that had you know, almost like a Wikipedia looking thing that I, I'm sure it's correct to that regard. But I didn't see anybody in the you know listed higher than four that was a defensive player. And of course, he had 15 sacks. He had nine and a half cents. He had two sacks. And, and it's funny in the Furman sort of bio pick page as you're flipping through, there's one of him just pummeling Austin Herring uh, from the backside, and I just like, oh. I almost took a picture and sent it to Austin. Like, hey, do you remember this play? But I did, didn't want to do that to him. And there's a lot of Fur- – Furman's very proud of being ETSU because if you go through their player biopics, there are a ton of home and away Furman ETSU uh, pictures on there. But I think the linebacking core uh, – and, and I was not um, – and, and I don't know, maybe I'm looking at the wrong stuff. And, again, I'm not a coach, but Coach Sanders last night on the – coach's show was talking about how great the defensive line is and when I watch it it's the linebackers but then I'm thinking is it more like ETSU where those guys eat up gaps and then the linebackers come make the plays and that's probably what is happening and that 3-4 defense that's sort of the deal for the most part and people stack it different ways and you know either you force it inside inside linebackers or outside for the outside linebackers whatever the situation is but normally if you get the the D-tackle, the DN, and the nose guard, they just kind of eat up certain gaps and areas. So he was raving about them. And, again, maybe I'm just looking at it from a different angle, or maybe I'm just so in tune with what Billy Taylor's doing, I understand what ETSU's line is doing, and maybe not what Furman's doing. But he's impressed with their line, and the linebacker's up front, seven. And then he talked about Travis Blackshear, which I think you have to talk about, because four interceptions at the corner position.
2: That's the second man that I was going to
1: and I mean, he, he's, two of his interceptions I've seen are quite incredible. And, you know, his skill, similar, I would say, you know, to an um, Elijah Huzzy, um, a Jeremy Lewis. Uh, Jeremy had a knack for, if the ball was near him, to make an interception. Now, Jeremy didn't have as many interceptions right now as either one of those guys. Uh, I mentioned Huzzy or there. But it just felt like ball skill. If the ball's around him, they just seem like they can um, step in front. And, make, and it doesn't seem like the Blackshear's taking chances. It's just, you know, if a ball's a little bit behind and his hands are near it, he's able to make an interception. So I think it'll be interesting to see defensively what Furman does. I think, and I'm curious to get your thoughts, last week pressure on Rydell wasn't good for Rydell, and Chattanooga blitzed some early, but late in the game they just figured out how to rush with four and get a good matchup with uh, Devon Maxwell. And so I'm curious, Furman, I don't think, can do that. So I think they will blitz. And my and question is, will ETSU be able to hit plays over the top? Because that's been the problem in 2019. That was a problem in the spring. They had big play opportunities and didn't hit them.
2: They also have been masters on offense of the big play themselves. I watched the Dominic Roberto run. That's the other thing I wanted to get to out of that game against the Citadel for Furman, 90 yards at 5'11", 242. And i got to say it was not a fluke, and, and he did not really have to break any tech. You know how you'd think, like, okay, 5'11", 242 is probably not going to have breakaway speed, and I'm not saying his speed is necessarily breakaway speed, but he hit that hole on the right side, went down the sideline, and anyone that would have been even with him was not going to catch him. You know, there's maybe a guy or two down around the 20 or 10, as he was closing in the end zone, that closed a step or two, you know, maybe, but it was negligible. I, I was quite impressed. Second longest run. In school history i'll be interested to see this week is devin win available because it's a groin injury it's keeping him out and much like a hamstring or you know a quad even just touchy you know there's no real timetable you can give it's all case by case and if it's just a pull which it seems like it is for Win, you know is that a week or is it three weeks you know him being back or not i think will be big but keep in mind much like the success that they had last week with Dominic Roberto, it is not just win. we know that Abrams is there too. He has not been a big factor in their run game. They like to use him, you know, more third down situations that kind of, you know, do everything, catch it out of the backfield, um, affect the game in different ways back. Uh, they'll get, you know, seven to 10 touches a game. Now they want to have their bell cow running back first and second down and Roberto more fits what they want to do there, obviously, and, and Win is kind of a, a can be kind of a road grader too. So those two are a bit interchangeable. Uh, win is the better back, but Roberto, um, you know, can obviously hit the home run as well. Though if you do take out, and I know you're going to talk about this as well, but if you do take out his 90-yard run, he averaged like 3.8 a carry. So is he going to be able to have the consistent success running the ball? Because if Furman cannot establish the run this game, it is big, big trouble. If they are forced to pass, especially not having an answer right now at the quarterback position. I'll say this. When I talked to Clay Hendricks this week, he made it sound as if he was talking like it is going to be Jace Wilson. You and me disagreed on this on Monday. You said you think Wilson's going to start. I thought it was going to be Sisson. It sounds like right now you're going to be right.
1: Uh, I love when you say that.
2: And, well, it's uh, basket it now because it doesn't happen very often. Uh, The quote from (laughs) Hendricks was, and this was uh, right after the game Saturday, he said, we had a chance to really take command in the second quarter but left some points out there. We had a bunch of opportunities to make plays in the passing game and hardly made any. There's some frustration there, right? But it seemed like when I talked with him midweek that despite the frustration, because Wilson was the one that was in during that second quarter and obviously missed some throws and ended up going, what, 4 of 12. It was a terrible day. Uh, But he is still going to be, the guy, at enhanced system that just doesn't seem like has shown enough. We know that ETSU is going to be the better passing team. I don't think there's any question about that. We know in theory at least that these two teams' run games would cancel out. Now, we pretty much thought we knew that in the Chattanooga game as well. We thought a number of things, uh, I think, about the Chattanooga game that hold true this game against Chattanooga. Didn't seem to matter uh, with the running games because ETSU you know, turned it over too much. They had too many bad penalties, gave up some big plays. To me, the keys are staying away from those things because they're the vastly better team as ETSU than Furman, in my opinion, when both teams are at their best on a given day. Now, here's my worry. Furman is top three in the league in turnover margin, just like Chad. They limit their penalties. ETSU last week did not. They run the ball well, just like Chad. You mentioned it. I don't think Furman is able to do the things that Chattanooga is able to do defensively with their front three slash four, with their pass rush. And you can say, yeah. it was all Devon Maxwell. You know, it was one player. Well, there's a whole unit that goes into his success. But certainly he exposed ETSU on the offensive line last week. But I don't think Furman is as good as Chattanooga. Up front, The more you look at the makeup of the teams, though, without just taking into account sheer raw talent, because I do think that Chattanooga is the more talented team. I still think Chattanooga is a playoff team. I still think Furman is not. Just looking at the makeup, though, their style, I get concerned. I think that if ETSU even eliminates some bad penalties, some turnovers, as long as they don't have the catastrophic moments that they did, they win this game. But, looking from week to week and the similarities between these two games, I don't think it will be easy, and I do think you have to stop, pause, and consider that these two teams, Chattanooga and Furman, want to do many of the same things, and if Furman can accomplish what Chattanooga did last week, that might be a victory for the Paladins.
1: For me, the layman, Chattanooga's team. defense jumps off the page more than Furman. And Furman's numbers may say certain things, and so there's got to be something to it. But just watching Chattanooga now in person, too, that's a pretty stout defense that really does a good job of forcing turnovers. <clears throat> you look at competition, too, and I'm not knocking Furman's NC State or North Carolina a t but I just think Chattanooga's schedule still is stronger right now than what Furman is.
2: And it's not been a bad schedule for Furman, but I do agree. No, no, no. It,
1: it is not. It's one of the better schedules uh, in the Southern Conference, and I would argue it's maybe slightly right behind Chattanooga as far as schedule play is going. I think defensively, you know, there's some problems they can lead to, but they give up big plays just because of the style and the way they want to attack, so if people can get big plays on them, then you can score and win. ETSU's clearly had opportunities to have big plays in 2019 and 2020. They've not been able to hit. Offensively, Jace White looks like he's going to get the start. Now, watch Sisson when he came in just to see, like, how he handled it. First um, throw is a little off. In the second throw, he threw a 45-yard strike down the middle of the field, and the wide receiver had it in his hands and should have caught it, that Peterson and it was knocked away that honestly would make any football fan cringe and nothing as Peterson. But it's a ball you've got to, to bring in on a strike that was thrown down the field. Wilson reminds me of, of Granger from Furman circa 2019 because his first read is there. He's, he's okay. He can make the throw. If it's not, he looks to tuck, run, and find some space. And he's very athletic and can make that play. So for ETSU, they have struggled with some running quarterback. So if he has his first re-taken away, they're rushing too far up the field. You give him a lane to run through, he's going to be able to run and hurt ETSU with their legs. <clears throat> the play-action game has hurt ETSU with Furman. So if they can kind of stuff the run a little bit early, it takes that away. I think ETSU is going to be able to make plays down the field because this is the best big play capability team since ETSU has had football back. And I know they had some big plays in 2018. When you look at the Hunter White um, screen pass for a touchdown in 2018, you look at the Vinnie Lowe fourth and 10, I think it was a 45-yard touchdown um, that he was able to catch, Moss and Herrick. So they had 40, 50-yard plays, 80-yard plays in that game and was able to hit big plays, 432 yards passing for Austin Herrick, a school record. So they're going to be able to hit plays down the field. And in 2019, they had plays. The biggest one, we're going to, uh, you know, Jamal Couch sighting here on the broadcast. But he's over there complaining they didn't throw him the football, they didn't throw him the football. They run a pump and go. He's 20 yards behind everybody, wide open, catches it, would walk into the end zone, and he drops it. And then Coach just looked up and said, I thought you wanted the football, and I want you to go sit over here and take your helmet off. So, Uh, There were plenty of opportunities, and then Furman's hit a couple of plays, and this is credit to Furman, in 2019 and uh, 20, that ETSU's been right there. In 19, it was the the Granger got hit as he threw it. It's a duck wobbler 40 yards down the field. I have no idea how no one can track down the football uh, except for Ron DeLuca who makes the catch, and so uh, that set up a score for Furman, and then the spring, Got loose. There was twice where a guy got loose just on the edge. There was nobody out there outside. They got blocked inside, and so they had two long runs. So there's a couple things ETSU's going to have to limit. And so far it seems like ETSU is giving up about three plays a game, that there is a breakdown somewhere three plays. That seems to be about the average as far as long plays, but they have been very costly. People have made them pay almost every time. So ETSU's got to cut that down. Now, Ron Miller's one of my favorite players to watch in the league for Furman. He's listed as a tight end. 58 yard touchdown catch last week. He's got 12 touchdowns, nine in the calendar year of 21. So, six in the spring, three so far in the fall. And he can run. He's not your prototypical tight end. Matchup
2: nightmare, right? I mean, it, that's what it is. And it's brilliant that they use him there.
1: They get him on a lot of play action, throw short, and he runs. And they've hit a couple seam routes or hot passes where it's fake to the first running back and just throw over the linebacker's head, and then he's just broken free because everyone's lost him. And Furman threw a lot of touchdown passes to the tight ends back in 2018. ETSU, I think, has kind of learned from that. He's only got three catches, 13 yards in 2019 and 20. So I think he'll be a key for ETSU to do that. Long story short, I think ETSU is going to be able to have an opportunity to hit big plays. If they hit the big plays, then I think ETSU wins the game. If they miss on these big plays, then I think ETSU is going to be in – I'm not saying they can't win. They'll just be in a, a little bit more of a dog fight, And then, it'll be, you know, it'll be a one-score game probably the way anyways. But if ETSU can hit the big plays, then I think ETSU will have an advantage.
2: There are 12 touchdowns scored in that 2017 game. Nine of them were 20 yards or more. Eight of them were 30 yards or more between both teams. And so it's a great point about big plays. But I think that Furman's going to have those chances too. And so this could be a really fun, entertaining game, much it, much like it was in 2017. That was a little more out of hand early, where ETSU was not really in the ball game after you know midway through the second quarter, uh, and just weren't really able to recover. As Furman went on to put up you know 56 points, and ETSU was never within a score uh, after um, with 30 seconds left. You know Furman ran one in from a couple of yards away, one of the few short touchdowns in that game, but. I think defensively and offensively, Furman is going to have their chances for big plays, and so will ETSU. You know, Travis Blackshire, we talked about two-thirds of an interception per game is third in the country. And Adrian Hope, we know, you know, the 15 sacks, freshman year, he's only had, I think I counted three in his last 13 games, after, of course, the 15 in his freshman year with the five forced fumbles as well. McCoy, we saw make those big plays. He's still working his way back from an injury kept him out all of the spring, so I think he's getting stronger and stronger as things go along, and, and brilliant when you're talking about starting those two, uh, Hope and McCoy. I, I absolutely love that because they're listed as the same position, and it would just be a shame to not have them on the field if you're a Furman fan at the same time. Um, let's just say that much like we thought with Chattanooga, you know, you're going to have the running games cancel out, and you've got two really good defenses. There's got to be ways where each team can beat the other that are a bit more unconventional, and that's, of course, why – We do this podcast. We want to find those things, right? And so for ETSU this week, I think it's it's special teams, and I kind of harp on this, you know, week in and week out, a bit like Randy Sanders. But there are a lot of differences between ETSU special teams wise and Furman, and 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 really you can find ETSU any given week where they're doing you know something if it's conversion wise or you know red zone if you want to count that as a conversion too, Uh, turnover special teams. This week it's special teams. They're five yards per punt better in the return game and ten yards per kick return better the Paladins. So if this is the type of game that it's been the last couple of years, because remember, what, what were the scores? Uh, 17-10 and 17-13. Last couple of years, Furman's won. Uh, if it is a nip and tuck affair, then field position is going to be huge, and the Bucs are also averaging five yards more per punt than the mocks are. With ETSU, I think there's a chance to get Tyler Idell back on track, because I think he'd tell you, and Randy Sanders is certainly told us during the week that he missed some throws last week. He was not at his best. So not only is it special team for TSU, but getting him back on track because Furman has just eight sacks. And, again, this feeds into that. Can Furman do what Chat did up front? Chattanooga has 20 sacks this year, two and a half times what Furman has. So I don't think that they can. Now, on the other side, Furman's going to be able to do, I think, that same thing against ETSU. They've allowed just four sacks all year. That's one of the best marks in the country, and ETSU was at just five until last week when Devon Maxwell destroyed the entire game. So they've given up just four sacks. Now it's going to be a lot easier for those quarterbacks to operate when they're not under pressure. That being said, you'd think that they would have been able to this year, and they really haven't, whether it's been Hamp Sisson or Jace Wilson. So they're going to be able to keep the QB clean. ETSU's weakness defensively is up front. <coughs> they're hurting for depth. And they're hurting for guys that can disturb the quarterback. Uh, If Furman can get up and force ETSU to battle from behind, I think, and start's always important, but I think especially this week, that would be huge because they are plus 20 in the first half. They're minus 30 in the second half. And they're one of just two teams in the country at the FCS level to not allow a fourth down conversion. So if they can establish themselves early, back ETSU into a corner, they've had success in those last ditch. Situations. There's a clear blueprint for success on both sides. I think that ETSU, if they can turn this into a bit more of a track meet up and down, Furman's not going to be able to keep up. I, I just don't believe. Tyler Rydell is going to have time. Can he make the throws? And if there is some gambling in the secondary from a Travis Blackshear, uh, if Adrian Hope and Elijah McCoy are going to be able to perform at a high level and, and get into the backfield, you know, does that secondary for Furman make the plays? Blackshear has this year. He's one of the best at it. But on ETSU's side, same thing. If Furman's going to have time, can their quarterbacks make the throws? Because Mike Price, Elijah Hussie, Karan DeLenz, Tyree Robinson, you know, throwing you know, Chris Hope, you know, others, um, George Odomegwu, who's you who's know, been called upon now because you've got a couple of injuries at that nickel position, those are going to be the players, I believe, those two defensive secondaries that can greatly swing this game. Will they? I think the one that does it better has a great chance to win.
1: ETSU has to be better on first down. Last week, 15 of the 30 first-down plays went for two yards or less, their worst of the season. It was their worst on third down because they averaged third and nine. So got to be better on first down so the third down's better. <clears throat> Mentioned penalties penalties hurt Furman last week, but that's not generally something they do. We saw the penalties start to mount up on ETSU. I think if ETSU I think ETSU is going to have an opportunity to make some plays down the field. I think they're going to have to. I think you'll see Randy Sanders and I think you'll see Furman try to run some quick hitting throws early for both teams to get their quarterbacks a little bit of confidence. The one question mark I would have for Furman is if Wilson struggles for a couple of quarters, does Hamp Sisson jump back in there? Where is Wilson's head at? Or do they even run a couple of packages where Sisson runs out there? I think Furman's got a little bit of edge there on if they want to do some creative stuff. It still doesn't shock me that they go with Wilson again to see sort of what he can give you. But because he got pulled mid-third quarter last game, I would say the leash is short. And honestly... He threw a three-yard pass that went for a 58-yard touchdown, and he handed the ball off for a 90-yard touchdown. He had a hard time moving the football any other time. And they were, you know, four or five three-and-outs after the couple of scores. And so I think even after the weird punt play, you know, they went three-and-out and kicked field goal. So I, I think there's some issues with Wilson Young, you know, trying – so I think they'll try to get him some throws. It wouldn't shock me if either team went play action and threw the ball in the very first play of offensive series. Now, I'm not saying down the field trying to take a shot. I'm just thinking something that's safe, easy, a play action, throw in the flat, get a four- or five-yard completion, try to get something going confidence-wise. And then last week was a matchup really where I think Jacob Sailors, because they wanted to get more laterally, it was a game that was built for him. Well, Quay Holmes has had good success against the Furman defense and so I'm curious to see if it's a little more in between the tackles with Holmes early and then going to the outside with Sailors late as opposed to last week where it was Sailors on the outside and then try to hit Holmes up on the inside. So I think the offensive line needs a bounce-back game for ETSU.
2: Not to get into this too much, but if you win this game, the pressure's a little bit off because you still have Western Carolina in the schedule, and the most games you can lose then in the regular season is three. And you have – CC team to me, you're a lock for the playoffs if you win this game.
0: How does ETSU
1: respond from the loss? Were they getting a little complacent and in love with themselves? You know, I think they were a little juiced up for the Chattanooga game and got them a little out of whack, and then they tried to settle down as the game went along. But you know, there was some um, some issues. There was a couple of line again. It was alignment issues um, that caused those long touchdown runs. Can ETSU? kind of correct the alignment issues. It was also the alignment issues that cost them in the Wofford game. So I wouldn't shock me if Furman doesn't do a little bit of motion and shifting just to see if they can get ETSU out of their gaps and confused and then see what happens there. Um, I think ETSU needs to be concerned about bouncing back and if nothing else, turn on the tape from the last two years of Furman and games are a little chippy too. Um, really in 2018, 19, and 20. Uh, now, 18 didn't really matter much because Furman just blasted ETSU, but 2019, um, you know, that was a situation where, or was it 18, they were going to the locker room. Yeah, it was 18, sorry, where ETSU won, <coughs> where they were going to the locker room. It was a halftime. That's why we now have those bicycle gates to separate the teams because of teams getting a little chippy there. And then last year, you know, I think Devin Wynn, Um, which, if you don't want him to celebrate on your field, then don't let him win on your field. I've always been a proponent of that. Everybody's like, oh, I can't believe he's celebrating on field. Well, if you don't want that to happen, there's one easy way to fix that. Win the game. And don't worry about when someone is celebrating and doing what. Whether he plays or not, that sort of stuck out. In 2019, You know, there was some uh, – 2019 was actually not really one. I guess it was the two home games at ETSU where things got a little more chippy. So, curious to see how that goes. And if ETSU – Who's let some penalties bother them. You know that game against Furman's a prime example. Two, three penalties. The weird one that was assessed to the wrong team. That the league came out and said yes, that was done wrong. I don't even know how that happens. They apologize. Spring, yeah. So I, nobody knows that. But ETSU didn't handle that well, and I don't know that I would handle it well. But like that's part of the gig, right? Like you can't let that affect you. We saw some penalties affect ETSU last week. So if they have penalties, they've got to do a better job of sort of washing that away. I think it's going to be a highly entertaining game, as it as it always is. It's a tough place to play. ETSU has struggled to win there. I think traditionally, you know, it's like 27-8 and 8, Furman all-time versus ETSU, and it's pretty lopsided when the games are played in Greenville, South Carolina. Although ETSU is still bringing it up as the best win for a road team in Paladin Stadium, and we'll be talking about that in the pregame show quite a bit. Uh, just uh, because I need something to talk about in the pregame show. So, All right, 2 o'clock, ETSU Furman. That'll be a 1230 pregame show here on the Buccaneers Sports Network.
0: Breakdown. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. Sandoz and the sidekick. We have ignition. Grab it on. Here we go.
2: think about when this bumper plays is poor Jan Stork just trying to wake up on her drive and this coming on and just <laughs> oh god what is happening
0: yeah
2: I feel a little bit bad it's an intense bumper
1: it is it's one of our favorites that's why we keep playing when we find a favorite bumper we just wear it out
2: so con preview Chattanooga at Sanford we both talked about how we view Chattanooga and ETSU as very similar teams now the mocks beat the Bucks last week so if you want to give them a slight edge understandable so if you give them a slight edge to them going to Sanford versus when ETSU did, that's also understandable. But remember, the 103 combined points scored and how the Buccaneers were that day, considering the defensive effort, may a bit fortunate to come out with that victory. One big reason they did was the passing game rose to the occasion. Career highs for Tyler Rydell in passing yards and passing touchdowns. If you view the teams as similar, the way that myself and Jay do, and you think the games will unfold the same way, then the question becomes, if you plan on giving up 28 points, can or excuse me, 48 points, can Chattanooga and Cole Copeland rise to the level that ETSU did in the passing game? I'm guessing Chattanooga is not planning on giving up 48 points. They're going to want to keep it in the 20s, as Wofford did with the Bulldogs last week. Because I'm not sure that they can keep up with Sanford, that being Chattanooga, if they're firing on all cylinders. But I think they also believe that their defense is better than ETSU's and will be able to keep it relatively low. What about you?
1: I think it will be lower scoring than what ETSU was able to do. I'm kind of curious. This game to me is more about Sanford. Can they figure out the matchup, which was for the game versus ETSU, was for them to just go fast and not let ETSU sub? Chat doesn't particularly sub as much as ETSU, so be curious to see if the number of plays could wear out Chattanooga. And the one thing I do know is, you know, it's all about matchups. And for whatever reason, where Sanford has Wofford's number, Sanford has not figured out Chattanooga. Chattanooga's rattled off six in a row, ten of the last 11. So it's hard for me to predict an upset when you just give generic facts of a team has a team's number. So I think Chattanooga's going to win. I think Sanford could make it interesting if they could get the score up. But if this game is 21-17, 24-20, then it's probably going to favor the Chattanooga Mocs.
2: For Sanford, DeMarcus Ware hasn't played since the early stages of the ETSU game. They're just going with Jay Stanton with a mix of an occasional multi-talented Montreal Washington, unconventional run design. Those traditional carries, though, are all going for Stanton, and he's been fantastic. Last week, 130 on the ground, just 12 carries. He benefits, obviously, from everyone having to stop the pass game first, to uh, Welch, Washington, A.J. Tony, and others. Most intriguing matchup of the weekend, at least in this game, and it might be in terms of the entire SOCON this weekend, is Devon Maxwell and his 10 sacks against any and every offensive lineman that tries to stop him. I think Sanford, if they can pass protect, I actually do think they have a chance to win. I think if Maxwell gets in there and bothers Welch, there's no shot. Now, I do think Chattanooga is going to win the game. But if Sanford can pass protect, I'm not sure. I think that could be a competitive
1: contest. Eleven straight games, Sanford has not got the 30 points against Chattanooga.
2: Wow,
1: well, that's mind that blowing. Well mind blowing. So, I think uh, the mocks and I'm sure the wise guys will have an absurd amount of over under on that game. But I would see this as a 27-20, 24-21, a 17-13. I mean, I could, I would see this a low scoring game. If Sanford could get to 30. I'll be honest, and unless it just turns into the ETSU game, because I would have said if Sanford got to 30 against ETSU, it would be a tough day for the Bucs, yes. and ETSU was able to, to pick up the win. But with the run game and some of the things that Chattanooga has big play ability, they could still hit big plays in the run game and don't necessarily have to pass. But if it gets to 30, I think Chattanooga could have a hard time in this game. My real thought is that there, I don't see Sanford getting to 30.
2: Western Carolina at the Citadel, first and foremost, as we mentioned, and we like to repeat ourselves on the show because you list the times and you go down just listen to what you want. We want to make sure that we give you each and everything. We said this in Segment 1. We'll say it here again in Segment 2. Director of Officials for the SOCON defended the blocking-out-of-bounds penalty that had, let's be honest, I know you agree with me, very little bearing on the Citadel's loss to Furman last week, just to put everyone's mind at ease because I'm sure so many people cared that that penalty was upheld by the SoCon director of officials and Well, what makes you feel any
1: better, the SOCON officials also defended the offsides because on the onside kick because it's like a plane of glass, so if a pinky's across the line, that is a that is a penalty. And uh, I wanted to send a message ah. to the SOCON and say, Could you please show me any time in the history of the game where on an onside kick a pinky was offsides and you've called that. If you could find it anywhere, you won't get a wrath from me. But I've I, so same same guy defended that with that statement. It's one thing to say, offside, yes, we confirm. It's another thing to say, well, it's really like a pane of glass. So, if just, I mean, if the eyelash is over it, I mean, we've got to call it. Yeah, never seen that. You another seen
2: reason that. that you have to take everything that directors yes. of officials. That's right. They're defending their guy. The That's right. It's so like I defend some. Mike every time
1: he does something crazy out in the public. i got to defend you. Same thing.
2: So, is this the week for Western Carolina, or are they just going to get flat-out physical, outworked, outpossessed, knocked around, run over? by the Citadel run game. Western is giving up 227 on the ground. The Bulldogs averaging 50 more yards per game than that on the ground to lead the league. Feels to me like Raleigh Webb is due for a big shot over the top. And Western Carolina's defense is the perfect thing to provide it for the Bulldogs. Just 75 combined receiving yards the last two weeks for Webb since he got his last bomb from Jalen Adams on the Bulldogs' first offensive play of the game against the Key when they won out in... Charleston Western is bottom three in the country, not the conference, but the country in total defense, scoring defense, and turnovers. They've given the ball away 21 times. That's nine times more than anyone else in the SoCon. Each turnover, of course, magnified in a game like this, which will probably have very few possessions and feature the Citadel offense for, I'd say, 40 of the 60 minutes. For Western, offensively, where they absolutely have to clean it up, they're coming off a bye week. Will there be anything that changes for them? They hope that Kenny Benjamin stays the same. He had his best week as a catamount against Mercer on the ninth, 149 total yards. Carlos Davis threw every pass for Western with Rogan Wells not playing, and after Mercer got blistered by VMI last week, the 10-point loss at home to the once-league-undefeated Bears for Western doesn't look quite as good as it once did. All that being said, I do think this is a close-ish game, and again, much like the Chattanooga game a few weeks ago, where it was 45 17 mocks. I said that about the Western and Chat game, and it was com- completely wrong. But then the Mercer and Western game nailed that. I think the Citadel bounces back, but maybe it's 28 21, something along those lines. I just can't see how this game will get out of hand one way or another.
1: If Jalen Adams throws more than three passes, they lose.
2: More than three? <clears throat> wow. Yeah.
1: I think they'll throw three passes. He'll go two for three, throw for a touchdown. 95 yards. Yeah, five yards sure. <laughs> Rogan Wells is, and I don't know if his gamesmanship is listed as the starter. I think that changes. Now, again, we all know that these are put out by the teams, and it's not like the NFL where you're obligated and fined by the league if you put out misinformation. This happens all the time. So I don't know if he's really going to start or not. I feel much better about Western's chances on the road if Rogan Wells is playing. That being said, I think the Citadel home has had like 40 minutes of total offense in the game last week at Furman. We'll probably have something like that. I don't think Western can make enough plays defensively to get Citadel off the field. I think this could be one of the quickest games in FCS uh, this week because Citadel's going to have the ball more than others or if Western turns it over. If this game was in Colley, I would be much more apt to give a better outlook for Western because I think they would be able to make enough plays to be in it. That being said, I agree. I'm not thinking Citadel's going to win 24-10. I'm thinking it could be a one-score game, but because of Citadel ground and just grind it out, and then they'll take a shot over the top, hit one touchdown, and if Adams only throws about three passes, then I think the Citadel will win this game, and I think special teams, the Citadel... Um, probably has a slight – that's one thing I think West Carolina is still struggling with too in the other facets of the game. But I think – I don't see Western slowing down the Citadel's ground game, and I think the Citadel will be very content with three, four-yard gains all day long in this one.
2: Wofford and Mercer the most clear-cut game of the week for me, ironically also the one I want to talk about the most. I don't think there's any further regression coming for Mercer, and I don't think there's any sudden emergence for Wofford on the horizon either. I am of the belief that the result against VMI was a one-off. The Bears and they're somewhere between a league undefeated and the team that got smoked forty five seven by VMI last week. I had Mercer middle of the league in the preseason media poll. I still think they're a five hundred team at worst, maybe a five and three team at best. Quick thought on that. Do you still agree?
1: Five and three. I'm just trying to think. They've still got to play ETSU, they've still got to play Chattanooga. They've still got Yeah, yeah, I could see five and three. Yeah.
2: Here's why I still think they're middle of the league and they're not a league contender. Quarterback's a problem, and and I think coming into the year we knew it would be. Carter Peavy was going to get the reins after he split time with Harrison Frost last year. The two were pretty equally average, if not maybe a slight advantage for Peavy, but Peavy has given very little opportunity this year, and the job early on goes to Fred Payton, who, in my summation, just looking at it, has been bad. Now, Peavy did play a little bit last week, 3-for-6, 93 yards, and that late garbage time touchdown, the only score for Mercer against VMI. I wonder if we don't see him again this week to try to switch things up and see if he's learned anything from sitting for the better part of the last four games. If that's the case, I believe he's the better option than Peyton. I think Mercer can be competitive as long as they limit turnovers and don't throw and fumble their way right out of a game as they did last week. I mean, again, you look at it, and we discussed this Monday, but they had to have been kind of shell-shocked out of the gate, really couldn't recover. I think the game was decided those first two possessions when VMI went up 14 less than two minutes into the game. Mercer didn't respond well to the adversity they faced, which, if we're honest, was their first real adversity under Coach Chronic in a big league game since he's been there. I mean, you look at the spring, and, yeah, they were in contention, but they lost a couple of games early on. Uh, in that spring season. And so they weren't truly in league title contention. And then early on this year, they're projected middle of the league. There's not really the expectation, right? They had won four of their last five SoCon games entering the year. So I think that maybe down in Macon, there were some that were like, okay, let's keep it going. But it was more, I don't want to say pipe dream, but it was more of a hope, a wish. And then all of a sudden you're 3-0 and and things are starting to get real. And then you got a game against a defending league champion against the national coach of the year and all of a sudden you look around and say oh guys this means something and they didn't respond well and they weren't able to recover from that bad start and so that's why I think it's a one-off and I think they're going to because I think Drew Kronick is a good head coach I think they're going to be able to say a lesson learned move on running game defense it's all solid when given a fair opportunity and by fair I mean when your quarterback hasn't already torpedoed your entire game plan two minutes into the action
1: One minute in the action, one second. Uh, His first throw of the game was so far high and wide Mm -hmm. that the guy guarding the guy ten yards down the field caught it and walked into the end zone. Like they ran a quick slant, whoever shot it, the guy that had the go route, his man intercepted it. I mean, it it was a bad. It was as bad as bad gets on the first play of the game. That's a scripted, practiced, everything going. And I think that certainly affected the quarterback play because they didn't look good on the next three plays. VMI came right down, Seth Morgan, with a you know rare rushing touchdown from about 15 yards out for him. So I think 14 nothing, getting things, and then they got out of whack. They didn't really offensively to me. They looked we got to score all these points at once, and I think that's the first time I've seen panic at Mercer where it was like, hey, you know, it's four. We're two and a half minutes in. It's 14 nothing. We're at home run the ball, run the ball, figure it out, and then they, they did not, and they threw all these passes, and it was bad. This is a, a matchup between a couple of young quarterbacks, and I'm assuming for Wofford that Bryce Corson will start again if he starts. Um, and is he the running quarterback or getting throw? Now, he threw a couple of darts down the field to get them in field goal range, and I did go back and watch that. Wofford missed a 41-yard field goal that was not tipped that was short. Mm. I set up Monday, and then I thought, that, that didn't sound right. Surely it got tipped, or I'm just misremembering. I went back and watched it a couple of times, and that's all I really watched was that last drive. Um, and he made some tremendous throws, um, some on the run, some across the middle, a couple third and longs, fourth down conversion even. I thought they did a great job get them in scoring. As a matter of fact, on a scramble play, they almost won the game, two plays before they tried to kick the game-time field goal. He got out of the pocket, of course, and he's rolling to his right, throws back across the field down the middle to a guy that was wide open, and the guy diving had just hit off the left-hand fingertip. It was just about, I don't know, two feet, probably too far. And even if he makes the diving catch, they're right there at like the two-yard line. But if he puts it two, three feet uh, back more, again, this was a tough throw. He's rolling to his right towards the sideline, throwing back across the middle. Cardinal
2: sent a quarterback, but it, it works when you guy's wide open. Was, and that's
1: what I was going to say. It, when he first started to throw it, and, and, again, I knew they had missed a field goal, so I knew, like, nothing crazy was going to happen. But at the same token, when he threw it, you have that gasp of, like, oh, no, what is he doing? <laughs> and then there's a guy just come running wide open into your screen, and you're like, oh, my goodness. And then when you see him almost drop it, and then, of course, it's the Watford uh, broadcast who so you – you know, you got uh, Tom Henson and Jim Noble, and, and they're trying to be as neutral as they can, but there is a gasp of, like, oh, my, they thought they could win the game on that play, and it sh- certainly would because they would have scored with about 14 seconds left, and barring a miracle. So he certainly has the ability to throw the football more, and we all know that's what they want to do. That being said, they ran the ball for 300, and what, 66, 36, whatever it was. It was an absurd amount. I think this game could have, like, 600-yard rushing, and I would be excited for it. Right. I really think that would – I think these teams will go back to – and, again, this worked for Wofford. They were able to have 200 yards passing because they had 300 yards rushing and they need to run the ball to get the pass open. And for Mercer, I think they just got to get back to do what they want to do, which is do all the smoke and mirrors and run the football and try to get 200, 250 yards on the ground. It wouldn't shock me if there's 500 yards combined. Honestly, I wouldn't be shocked if there's 600 yards on, on the ground and not much passing, because I think both teams can have success running the football. And then it comes down to which quarterback can make a throw. And I think if this wasn't a home game, this is at Mercer, right? If um, if this wasn't at Mercer, I know you'd be shocked, but I would almost call for the Wofford upset. But because it's at Mercer, I'm going to lean the Bears.
2: Well, I talk up Mercer and say they're – going to be better, they're middle of the league, quarterback's a problem but I still believe in them, watch me turn into a Wofford fan five losses in a row but I want to be fair, because three of those have been by one possession, they've been in games had a really bad 15 minutes against Furman and couldn't get any offense going against Kennesaw State, those were the other two losses that they didn't lose by one score and the one compelling thing this week is going to be, if the Terriers will be able to have the success in running more of their quote unquote, traditional style of play again, I put quotes around it because I'm just looking at stats and how things have unfolded in their past versus last week. 40 minutes they possessed it, almost 600 yards of offense, and you mentioned it, over 300 in rushing offense. By the way, I think Mercer would be extremely happy if this game uh, combines for 500, 600 yards of rushing offense because they averaged less than one yard per carry last week against VMI. Uh, Great signs for Wofford that they were able to put up those numbers last week. We know Sanford's defense is pretty soft. And at least on paper, Mercer's is much better. How much success can the Terriers have this week doing what they did last week? I hope they stick with doing what they did because, to me, playing that way and being able to do it well marks a chance to return to the top of the league. Obviously not this year because you've got Josh Conklin just fighting for his job at the moment. But if they win a few to end the year, I wonder if they save their head coach's gig and then build on a foundation that, granted, is only one week long but shows promise. It all starts with this week. All that being said, they also have to force more turnovers. Only seven this year tied for a league low, so that too. And they need to be better on third down on both sides of the ball because they're last in the league offensively and defensively. And they also have to figure out who their quarterback's going to be, if it's Weirich, if it's Derrick, if it's Corriston. And I think Corriston does present some intriguing things that you haven't seen from Weirich and Derrick, but is he going to be able... To sustain his success over a long period of time. It's the same thing with Jace Wilson for Furman, right? Like, flashes are there. Hey, he can make some throws. He's done some good things. In his first start, he looked good. Now, he didn't put up record breaking numbers or anything like that, but he looked solid. But then last week, he was four for 12. Uh, You know, the ups and downs when you don't have a quarterback. When you have three, you have none, right? When you have two, you have none, people even say. And right now, Wofford has three. Now, we haven't seen Weyrick in a few weeks, and Derek hasn't been very good. Corson's been all right, but none of them are winning that job.
1: I'm going to give you my favorite stat because you know I will. 7-0 since joining the Southern Conference, Wofford over Mercer. So that's 2014. Two of the three wins have been one point, 34-33, 28-27. Now they blew them out in 2019, 41-7. Did you know Mike Gallagher, the last time the Mercer Bears (laughs) defeated the Wofford Terriers, and I know you're dying to hear this, 29,225 days. Stop it. Are you serious? 29,000. 1941 was the last time the Mercer Bears defeated the Wofford Terriers in football. Do
2: you hand calculate that, or you got a little cheat sheet that
1: you're using there? You, you know my math. I have a cheat sheet. There's no way I hand calculate that. 29,000 days. That's Does a, the streak end? Now,
2: that's the longest day counter I've ever heard you use. I've never heard one longer than, I think... I think eight thousand is the uh, longest I've
1: one. got I, we have I think we had an eleven when, yeah, when okay. football first came back there okay. was, I was there was for they, that. Had, they had <clears throat> it was like a road game road win and so some, kind of, some weird thing. I'll say this though. Now they didn't play if you reverse the one and a 1941-2014, right? So you have obviously 20,000 days, years. right, sure. Yeah. Uh, d- didn't quite go there, right. but they're 7-0. Mercer's looking for their first win, and normally, you know, I would always go with, well, the matchup says you go with Wofford. And honestly, if this was at Wofford, I'm telling you right now, I would I would slap the table and go. No, oh, you'd love to. I'm going the Wofford Terriers. Josh
2: Coughlin's the greatest coach in the history of the You Southern know, it's my guy. He's my guy.
1: I'm going to go Mercer begrudgingly, and I think it'll be closer to the 28-27 that they had a few years ago back in 2017. I think it will be that type game, 28-27. I think the teams will be able to move the football up and down the field, and the 34-33 could be closer to it as well. I think this will be a high-scoring affair with teams running the football all over the place, Um, and I think the Mercer Bears will squeak out and another heartbreaker for Conklin and the Terriers.
2: Conklin, chronic, battle of the seas, great coaching matchup, and I'm excited for a great b segment b5 buck basketball buzzer beater block <laughs> Team season, Jay Sandos, and I bet you thought I wouldn't be able to find anything good throughout the entire year. Well, so the irony...
1: Well, first of all, you're looking at stuff on me, so you're always going to find something good.
2: So no the was- irony <laughs> that we have three different buzzer beaters in what's tied for the worst win total for ETSU basketball in the last quarter century is truly perplexing and... And fascinating. Let's start early in the year. The Bucks had lost to Virginia Tech on the road and then Tennessee Tech at home for their first two contests of the season. Now, the Golden Eagles went 5-11 and in the OVC that year. I imagine that's around when you started to know this season was going to be tremendously forgettable, correct?
1: So, that really wasn't. Oh. It was two, three days later when we loaded the bus to go to Charleston Southern and then the... Um, police cars show up and they take two guys off the bus and then they are (laughs) just they are dismissed from the team um a couple days later but we went to Charleston Southern without two of the best players two starters on the team and if people want to do a whole lot of research and not familiar with the program from that time frame you can look up Sheldon Cooley Marcus DeBose and figure it out yourself but they were dismissed from the team and that was my sign that it was (laughs) going to be a bad year when two starters who averaged a lot of points from the previous year we're not going to be on the team, and I had, I'll be honest, zero faith going down to Charleston Southern uh, because if we were sitting there. There was a delay. Next thing you know, two guys are asking off the bus. There's not a whole lot of words. We played the game. It was only a day or two later that everyone kind of got the story on what had really happened. But we went down there shorthanded with that, and so I, I, that was my sign of it wasn't going to be a good year.
2: Well, if you had zero faith going into the game, I imagine 15 minutes into it when Charleston Southern was up 35-15, to 15. That you had what's less than zero, like absolute zero faith. This is about as bad of a start to the season as you can imagine. But the Bucks reel off a 16 to 3 run to end that first half, cut it to seven. They come all the way back to tie it at 57 with 53 seconds left, and then this. So McLean will get it to Kennard Gaston, with 20 seconds to go in a game.
0: 20 seconds to go in a game where Ty score, Charleston Southern, ETSU with a rock, McLean with it. 15 to go in a contest. McLean still at mid 10 seconds. Lester Wilson with it. He attacks. A floater. Off the glass. No good. Ball check Gets to Gilliard layup. He oh. missed it. John Walton got it. Yeah. John Walton with a tap of 3.7. Timeout. Charleston Southern. Wilson missed. KGG missed. And a final tap. By John Walton III, his seventh
2: point. Fifty-nine, fifty-seven. The final. John Walton, maybe the most anonymous Buccaneer on this list of buzzer-beating winners. Spent just two years with ETSU. Transferred to Troy. Actually turned into a pretty solid player. Eleven points per game, eight rebounds per game for the Trojans in his final year. He
1: wanted to be a three-point shooter, and so he went to a school that let him be a three-point shooter. And actually, one of my obscure and favorite players. He was a great kid to deal with. Uh, Good attitude. And just very coachable. He was a fun kid to be around. And so I was very happy for him because, you know, he had put in the work his freshman year and didn't get a lot of action and then able to come in and, and get the big tap in. And anytime I get a good KJ, uh, KGG reference, Kennard gaston gillard and the thing I remember most about that game was anytime we played in South Carolina, which is where Kennard is from, his family, friends, contingency of 20 or 30 were strong. They were loud. There were possible fights in a parking lot afterwards. Like, they were <laughs> – they they brought energy. And Charleston Southern's gym is one of the worst uh, abominations in the history of college basketball, along with USC Upstate. And both those places, the fan base was – ran out of dodge because Kenard Gessinger's family and friends and cousins and everybody else that came would just overtake a gym and wear people down. And then the, they actually stormed the floor. And, again, there's only – 185 people can be in that gym, but his family stormed the floor after the game was over. That's one of my favorite memories on that, besides John Walton having a massive tap
2: So if Walton's the most anonymous Buccaneer on this list because of just his two years in Johnson City, I'd imagine you'd agree that these are the two most anonymous buzzer beaters on this list, simply for the fact that they meant essentially nothing in a lost season. After ETSU beat Charleston Southern, they lose 10 of their next 11. And we're two and eleven coming into Atlantic Sun
1: play. Can we talk about the next two games though? Because I got good stories oh, on feel there. Feel free. So the next two games are Georgia and Milligan, and I sent Elias Sports Bureau messages for I don't know a solid month before they told me to leave them alone. I think this is a modern day college basketball record that will never be unmatched. Mike Gallagher, I want you to read off the screen here. Am I on the right game? I am. Uh, yes, I am on the right game. Can you tell me what Georgia went from the free throw line?
2: Uh, from here, it looks like 0 of 1.
1: Can you tell me what Milligan went from the free throw line?
2: From here, it looks like 0 of 0.
1: <laughs> Two consecutive games, not a made free throw. 80-some minutes, and I didn't go back and see when a free throw was made previous and before. 80 minutes of modern college day basketball. Zero made free throws. It's the greatest free throw defense in the history of the game in modern era. And I can't. The one thing Elias finally did respond to me about leaving them alone said it was humanly impossible to go back through all because all the stats aren't kept like the NBA where they're like, listen, if this is the NBA, we could punch in a few things, get in the archives, we can go. But college basketball and people uploading NCAA, like, there's just no way to know. So unless someone can dispute me, it's the greatest free throw defense in the history of the world of modern basketball. Zero made free throws in two consecutive games. Go.
2: And. If that is what is memorable about this season, you dag on right, it is. It is a truly representative thing to know how the season was going. Can I give you one more?
1: Sure. Okay. Then uh, where was the VCU game? VCU game oh, was that they before? Just smacked. The box yeah, here. but I gotta get one. Okay, so it's coming right out of the uh, Hawaii trip, right? ETSU got hammered uh, in Hawaii three straight. Come home right before Christmas break. Play VCU. Uh, there is a guy you may or may not have heard of, Troy Daniels, mm, NBA yes. shooter. He hits eight threes early in the game. Early in the game. Early in the game. Shaka Smart sits him down. Somebody goes over there and tells him, hey, the school record, you know, is nine if he wants to go for that. So he sits for four minutes, gets back in the game, hits a three, he's got nine. So he sits back down, and they're like, well, that just tied it. Don't you want to put him back in? <laughs> After two and a half minutes of not playing, he gets back up, or gets they're in up the game. 30 at this point, right? He takes <laughs> another shot. It's good. Here's my other favorite minute to go in a game, somebody reaches over. I think from ETSU, stuff said, hey, the Dome record's 10. Does he want the Dome record? <laughs> he gets put back in with about 30 seconds to go, hits another three. He finishes 11 for 20 from three-point range. The Dome – it will retire since we don't play in the Dome anymore as the Dome record of 11 threes, a school record, a Dome record, and a heartbreaking watching that every single time uh, as it went down as VCU uh, barely escaped 109.58. <laughs>
2: Forty-nine point win. Wow, and the fact that he. Hit Fifty-one, if threes. my math is correct. Uh, 50, oh, 109 oh nine fifty-eight. 50, yeah, you're right. Fifty-one. Yep. I, I undersold it. Sorry. Uh, that's got to be one of the only fifty-plus point losses in UTAH. It's the right. second yeah, one so. I can
1: remember because we lost to Syracuse also <laughs> exactly. uh, on another trip to Hawaii uh, that we'll get into a little later on this year. But uh, that was that was a fifty-point game in which Murray Barto used all of his timeouts before the first media timeout. It was twenty-six <laughs> nothing before the thing got done. Okay, going.
2: this is too much buck negativity. Let's go back to the positives. ETSU was a middle-of-the-league team going into February as they rebounded from a tough non-conference and pretty much were win- winning every other game. So you go into Febu- February where you at least have to admire that they weren't giving up here in the Dome against Lipscomb. you got to play the clip. That's I, how this works.
1: I know, but okay. I want I to talk about one more loss. But no, I, I, no, no, okay. no more losses. Uh,
2: all
0: right, all right. Back to Jones. A three over Hurt is up and good. 36 for Jarvis Jones. Alexander trying to get to the rim. Shot up, no good. The tap on Hurt, no good. And the ball game is over. ETSU
2: wins by a score. 90-88. to Personally, you sound like you're on your deathbed. Broadcasting that game, I don't know what happened, but uh, that that did not sound like you were in an all right state of mind or a physical condition, uh, and you're not often in a good physical condition. So maybe that was <laughs> it. But 90 points scored that game for ETSU, their most uh, of the season against a Division I opponent. 36 for Jarvis Jones on his 22 shots, and now we get to celebrate him because this is his third and final buzzer beater as a Buck, the most on this feature. And you'd probably think, wow, as I did, he must go down as one of the greatest Bucks ever. But I was shocked looking through the record book never averaged more than six points per game until his final year with the team. Not one of the Bucks' 42 1,000-point scores. Please help me understand this.
1: Well, number one, that was his senior year, his fifth-year senior year, and he missed the first six games because he was academically ineligible. Mm. So he finally got eligible, and Jarvis just sort of had a flair for the dramatic. Like, and he, obviously he had, his senior year, he had some monster games where he would score 30 points or whatever, and again... Two players on that team that were expected to take a lot of shots were not on the team anymore, which makes that even more odd because you talk about we missed the two guys early in the season are gone from the team. Then Jarvis Jones can't even join the team until, I believe, the game at Ole Miss, which is mid-December. So we missed the game at North Carolina, which you're not going to stop me from talking about this. ETSU looked like a bad episode of the movie Hoosiers where seven guys were dressed out in the warm-up lines. North Carolina lets their JV team run out with them. There's like 37 dudes in warm-ups doing layups and seven on the other side. And I pride myself a lot where – and I think at this time, um, I think Tranbarger was his first year. And so he was uh, traveling – no, it was Tom Conrad, I think. Conrad was with me this year, which is why we had 10 losses. So Tom Conrad's riding with me. And I always made a joke. I was like, Tom, if nothing else, I feel like we could always whip the other broadcast team if we need to get in a scrape. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, Jones Angel, North Carolina, I probably could take him. You just got to take the color guy. Well, I stood up to go introduce myself, and I headbutted the guy on the belly button, and it's Eric Montross. And, oh
0: my and he's
1: wearing this shirt where he's got the two bloody eyes from the Duke game. Uh, and that's what he's wearing. I look at Tom, I'm like, buddy, we ain't winning this war. So I knew it was going to be a bad day, number one.
2: Legit seven-footer, right? He was, he went yes, to Yes, yeah.
1: seven-one and every bit of it. Then we had the layup line where we just looked like a bad 1A team at like the biggest 6A, 8A, whatever A you have in your state. Then ETSU went over 11 minutes without a field goal in the first half. And when they finally hit a 3 to make it like a 33-7 to 7 game, the fans applauded wow. in sarcasm and – Mike White, who's the SID, turns and looks at me, and he is just screaming the accolades of all of ETSU greatness to Carolina, which I had to calm him down. I was like, first of all, you're in the wrong place to yell at. Yeah. Number two, I just have a question for you. What did you think would happen when we had seven people, and that includes walk-ons that were only, you know, injury, kicked off the team, academically ineligible. Like, we're just we're trying to beat them with something called a Unio Barriweta in the game, right, and a Mario Stramaglia. So that's what we're trying to what beat Carolina with. I'm impressed you still
2: remember how to Yeah, it. he
1: actually was a slam dunk champion. Wow. Uh, he won from a Division two slot. But anyways, that being said, it was not a banner day, so I will get off that. Going back to Jarvis Jones, it started, the year started off odd. We had that. He was academically ineligible. When he came back, they needed somebody to take the shots. He was the best guy to take the shots. So he had a lot of games that he was able to score. On the other teams – he really wasn't the first, second, third, sometimes not even the fourth option. But he did have a knack for if you needed a game-winner, game-tire, a buzzer-beater, shot-clock shot, he could hit that with his eyes closed. It was amazing. to And, and I mean, it would just be mid-game. You're like, oh, okay, we only got three seconds on the shot clock. Somehow Jarvis gets in a corner and beats a buzzer. Like, if there was a buzzer that was going to go off, he may be the greatest buzzer finisher of all time because I'm not sure. I can't remember – And I obviously remember a lot of bad. I can't remember him missing one with a clock going off. He hit every single one of them. It was incredible. And always against Lipscomb, it seemed like, too.
2: Most buzzer beaters on this countdown, and not one of the most hailed players on this countdown, but this man was one week after the most heard buck on this count-up, I guess you should call it, to the season here in the 2021-22 campaign. The buck's still fighting. Clawing and on your favorite road swing, Florida Gulf Coast and Stetson, on the back end of it a new member of this count up to tip off introduces himself to the buck basketball buzzer beater blowout and this was really the year he introduced himself to the college basketball scene as well
0: jones got free in the corner rimbert to take the lead rashawn rimbert gives it to him 5.8 to go and rashawn rimbert gives the bucks their first lead since 2 to nothing Narberg's green, 5.8. They'll have to go the full 94 feet. They'll get it to Narberg's. Narberg's with four seconds near midcourt. Three seconds. Runs into Kennard. Gatson Gilliard. No whistle. And the Bucks are going to escape with a win,
2: 62-61. Rashawn Rembert scored just 1.5 points per game his freshman year. This was his sophomore season. He ranks 13th all-time on ETSU's career scoring list, third on the career three-takes and makes list most ever threes in a season for ETSU with 108 in the 2013-14 year, and also played the most minutes in a season in program history that season, but in the one that preceded it, this 2012-13 year, nets that against Stetson, so on this team, there certainly is someone that is synonymous with ETSU scoring and greatness, and Rashawn Rembert getting a tight victory there over sets.
1: Yeah, that the thing I remember about that one was the fact that ETSU never led and was always kind of scratching and clawing. Second thing I remember was Pat Adams, one of the referees in it, and Pat is famous for throwing radio guys out of the building. <laughs> but when there's only 13 people in the building, then you know I could make sure I didn't make hand gestures or whatever that would get me thrown out. And he came over to me one time, and I re- remember the night before, uh, or I guess it was a, uh, because um, that was a Monday night game. He had called a Sunday Big Ten game on CBS, and so I said, "Hey, this is slightly different than the Big Ten game you called the other day." And he goes, "Yeah." He said, Well, it's going to be even worse considering I got Kansas and Oklahoma State tomorrow. I got to fly out too. And so I joked with him about that just about the game being ugly and not a lot of scoring going on. And then all of a sudden, Rimbert hits the shot. We get the win. I'm doing the postgame show, and he walks by me and goes, Well, that certainly got more entertaining. And he just walked off. So um, always enjoy getting to know a lot of those guys and banner with, with officials, and that, that's not that I like all of them, but it is fun sometimes to get in a situation where Pat ended up calling in a league for a while, and so he saw me enough that if something happened I could say, in a break, like two or three possessions later, hey Pat, can you just I can tell people what happened? And then he would tell you. He'd be one of those guys that like, if you made a hand gesture now, and he didn't like it. He'd throw you out of the building, as we know from previous uh, conference tournaments. But it's certainly, if you got to a point where you weren't you could get on a scale with him. He would come over and explain stuff to you in a way that at least, you know, you could sound much smarter than what you were. But that game was a much-needed win late in the year, but it was a forgettable year that ETSU wanted to turn the page quickly.
2: Yeah, they got the victory there, but four weeks later they lose by 21 to that same Stetson team in the first round of the ASUN tournament. Won just ten games all year, as we mentioned, tied with the 0 4 season for least wins in a season since the 96-97 year. Obviously, we don't have to – pour over that one too much more you've found a way as your descriptive powers do to uh, in painful amounts of detail with specific losses uh, tell us what happened and it seems like just from the very start of that year with i've never heard of a team bus being pulled over and having people taken off of it and then hauled away and then all of a sudden they're dismissed from the team as well i've never heard of that but it seems like it would be hard to recover from
1: it uh, it was interesting. <laughs> I, mean, it, I mean, we we technically hadn't got off campus yet, but still <laughs> I still, you know, know, still I mean, still, still, I mean and, and I I will say this, uh, in if if I read that roster, half those guys aren't even there anymore. But ETSU like they've always been able to do, you look at the next year's roster and you add uh, I mean Petey McLean was already on that, but you and Rashawn remember, but you add Jalen Riley, you look at Isaac Banks, you get a guy AJ Merriweather, Lester Wilson. Then you – Lucas Padaris to go with Hunter Harris, Kennard Gaston gilliard Petey McClain. So, remember – so, you started to see, okay, it was a quick kind of turnaround for ETSU to bounce back as they did 13-14, which we'll talk about that, so I not want to give go that on. away. But it was a nice turnaround, and it was a year that happened. It was forgettable. ETSU was able to turn the corner and get, get some folks uh, um, on the roster and could play, and so – what yeah. My seconds? That was, yeah. Nah, Enjoyable. That's, uh, the
2: most buzzer beaters in a season in what happens to be the worst year of UTSC basketball during this count up to the season, which is very confusing to me. Maybe it just means that the more close games you're in, the worse you are. I'm not sure.
1: That's something to be said, because if you blow people up by 30, you're probably not winning a lot of those games. I don't know. Uh, unless you're football, and you play every game uh, by three points. Fact.
0: Show <laughs> Oh, Johnny, I don't know if you heard this. He's going to pitch.
1: My new favorite player. Hit.
0: Mark it down. Plus 10 in earth. Hit
2: a buck 20 max. There's not a soul that can stop the victory in New Jersey. That's in five, baby. this year, coming. Literally the last person on earth that should ever be considered
0: for U.S. national team is javel Mickey.
2: NIL stands for never in life. As a never in life will NIL be a real thing. No, no, you can't. You cannot
1: show me one guy more dedicated to the university than Damari Monsanto. He will go
2: down as one of the best to ever do it at ETSU. Especially never do it, but A newly Sorry. fit Jay Sandoz will never stop another drive in Johnson City Country Club Senior Tour. Here we come. Still time for that one though.
1: I'm not fifty. Oh, it's getting close. Well,
2: predictions. I am eight and eleven, and unfortunately, because I'm sorry. This is you are eight and eleven. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, yeah, no. let's, let's correct uh, that quickly. Well, to be fair, the three numbers that we each have are the same. So if I have like a dyslexia issue, you mm-hmm. know, like maybe I am eight and eleven, and you're one and eighteen.
1: That's that's not true, but yes.
2: Unfortunately, you're one and eighteen because this is Studio B. Jay Sandoz has control of when we play the close. I would love to play it right now because, obviously, both predictions has not gone my way. Let me just go ahead and get mine out of the way because they're obviously all going to be wrong. ETSU hadn't held Furman to 17 points or below in 1986. All right, until the last two seasons. They hold them to 17 in 2019 in spring of 2021. They lose. Incredible to think about because they're two lowest totals in 35 years. And the box. lose both. They make it three in a row. That's what speeds speed you oh. up. I just want to speed you up. <laughs> they make it three in a row this year, uh, holding Furman to 17 or less. 17 or less. 17 or less. All right. Great performance.
1: I'm going three completions of 25 yards or more for Tyler Rydell. Mm. Because they have missed for two straight years on any of those. And they've been missing the last couple of games. So they are going to get redialed in three completions, 25 yards or more.
2: Can I guess what your second one is? Army over Wake Forest? It is not. Okay. I thought you would do that. So I was going with another military academy. Okay. Air Force over... San Diego Diego State State, yeah. their first loss in fall of 2021. Plus, just for fun, Tennessee loses by 28 or more to Alabama. That's one prediction, so I need to get both right. Power those two together, and uh, it could not uh, happen to a more deserving fan base of a massive loss after last week's ridiculousness down at Neyland. 28 or more, Tennessee will lose by to Alabama and Air Force over San Diego State.
1: Okay, I'm going, and I teased this earlier, I'm going 600 yards on the ground. Mercer Wofford combined. They are going That's to run and run and run. I was going to go five hundred, and uh, I don't know. i just I, I thought I'm feeling real good about myself. I, like I do something ridiculous and go six hundred.
2: The season high in receiving yards in the NFL is two hundred six by Devontae Adams. Most rushing yards is one hundred eighty-two by Derrick Henry. One of those is going to fall this weekend, either receiving yards or rushing yards. It very well could be Derrick Henry because he running away with the rushing title for the third consecutive year. Which I think only like a couple of people have ever done. Yeah, he's an absolute force, a beast,
1: a mammoth, an animal. I love him. I was gonna go, to the Los Angeles Dodgers take the next three games and break the Braves' mm. hearts, but now you've talked me into Army over. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm gonna stick with it originally. I'm gonna go. The Dodgers are going. The Braves are gonna do Braves things, and I have too many Braves fans that they start to believe they get it ripped away. Mm-hmm. They start to believe, they get it ripped away. And now they're at a fever pitch. We're going to do it. Terrible this point. is our time. This is what's going to happen. And I'm afraid that they're going to do Braves things. So I'm going go to go the Dodgers, which they play as we record this Thursday and then Saturday, Sunday, so we will know on the weekend who's going to the World Series. So I have to win three games to get that prediction right. But I will go the Dodgers will win three in a row, rip the heart out of all my – Robert Harper won't be able to get out of bed. I don't know what Matt Wiljom's going to do. He's he, he's a – I don't want to say a closet baseball fan. He loves baseball. Big Braves guy. He actually went to Braves game a few weeks ago. So he's all in. Harper's all in. All my buddies that are Braves fans, and they're just going to have him ripped away because they're going to pull Braves things.
2: In a rare <laughs> twist of fate. I think I'll be rooting for that as well because if it means pain for Matt Wiljom and Robert Harper, I am on board.
1: <laughs> and, and me winning another one, you're all for well, that. Well, I'm,
2: I'm for it. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I really can't afford to have you get too many more right, but there is a special set of circumstances where I will be cheering for you, and this is it. Matt Wilk Robert Harper, stay in bed all Sunday. Pull the covers over your eyes. Try to get out of bed Monday for work. But if you can't, just remember, it was Jay you, and I was right by his side. Cheer for the Dodgers.
1: Let's go, L.A. All right. so right. That, that'll do it for our show. It should be entertaining. Bye week next week. That doesn't mean we're not going to have a show. We'll just catch up on some other things we want to talk about. And, of course, basketball. Maybe some
2: fail down. We haven't a fail down. And there are so
1: many. I know I've been sending you we a We can time. do
2: uh, four downs uh, or the less popular four quarters. I found four quarters when we were going through some other stuff uh, yesterday trying to figure out what we had, what we didn't
1: because this piece of equipment crashed. Four quarters. Studio B. Much it, less popular. We survived Studio B. So we'll see if we get back in Studio A for Monday. Two o'clock kick, ETSU Furman. We'll recap it next week on another edition of Sandoz and the Sidekick.